I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. It's Tuesday, and I hope that you have had time to check out the wefoundtime.com link on my website, zibbyowens.com, the new site, the new website, and that you've been consuming the fabulous exclusive content from authors who have been on my podcast, like Gretchen Rubin and Claire Gibson and Alyssa Altman and Nicole Keir. It's a great and also a little essay from myself. I hope that you like it. Also, don't forget to check out my Instagram lives today. I do five a day, Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. And I have a great lineup and you'll hear more about this new site and from some really fantastic authors. So be sure to check that out. Enjoy this podcast and we found time. Go find yourself some time too. I hope everybody's doing okay during this quarantine. Bye. I'm here today with Casey Schwartz, who's the author of Attention, A Love Story. A graduate of Brown University, Casey has a master's degree in developmental neuroscience and psychoanalysis from University College London. Her first book, In the Mind Fields, was about the culture clash between the old and new ways of thinking about the mind and brain. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, Departures, New York, and many other publications. She currently lives in New York in Brooklyn with her husband and her new baby. Welcome, Casey. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you, Zibby. I'm so thrilled to be here. Casey had a baby six weeks ago named Dash, and she's finally (laughs) out of the house and, you know, out on the subway and back into the mainstream. So we're going to go easy on her. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go too easy on me. (laughs) Congratulations again. Attention, a love story. I loved this book. It was so good. It was like part memoir, but then you did all this investigative research and just sort of like wove it in all in the first person tone. Actually, I should just ask you to describe it. But anyway... Just so you know, I really love this book. So. Oh, that's so kind of you, really. Thanks. Anyway, tell us, listeners what Attention to Love Story is about. Well, it's about this quest that I've been on for probably the last four years to try and understand what attention is and how it connects to every aspect of building a meaningful life and why we need to fight to take it back from the screens that have inundated our lives. And it's also about your own journey and what made you on this quest to begin with. Totally. This this book is highly personal for me. And in a sense, it started when I went off to college around the year 2000 and a friend handed me a little blue pill called Adderall, which had only been on the market for about four years at that point. And I wound up spending, you know, 10 plus years kind of addicted to the so-called attention pill, thinking this pill is necessary for me to succeed and achieve and pay attention. And it was only when I was about 30 that I was able to get off because I understood that it had had, ironically, the opposite effect for me. It had shattered my attention. And I think it was in that period of time that I became kind of fascinated by attention itself. And then a couple of years later, I had this thought one day, like it was so, it was such an emotional thought, like, Why are we giving away our attention so casually? This was about 2015, you know, well into when screens had invaded, but I think before we'd all gotten a little disillusioned with Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And it felt like such a pointless thought to have. Like it was, the fight was over. Silicon Valley had won. But it was still the one thing I felt like it was worth devoting my time to do my next book on. It was the one thing that, I felt that groundswell of emotion thought, 
I could live with this subject for years. And you really like delve deep. Even in this book, you talked about the process that went into writing your last book and how you journeyed through a therapist's years and years of transcripts with like a stroke patient who was, I mean, you go into it and you stay with your topics for so long. I mean, it's impressive. No, not at all. I mean, he was a, that particular person was a pleasure to spend time with, but, and he can't, he comes up in this book because this was a therapist who was working with a patient who had had a stroke and couldn't speak. And they did their therapy for seven years somehow together. And he became for me an example of monumental, heroic attention as you try to decode a man's language when he can barely get out five syllables. And yet wants to write down Bloomingdale's. And <laughs> <laughs> totally, still, still in a normal life of sorts, you know? That really is like such a nightmare, the idea that you can, you know, that be trapped in your body. Like, completely, I mean, completely. Anyway, so I went to bed ruminating on how awful that is and how lucky we are even to be able to talk. Completely. But then you also go into things like a complete analysis of the total work of David Foster Wallace and have yourself like peering over his balcony and and how other people have written about attention or so tell me a little bit. Completely. I mean this book is both personal it's about you know my struggle with Adderall my dad my mom psychedelic science but there are also these four incredible writers who play a huge role in this book, David Foster Wallace, William James, Aljuis Huxley, and Simone Weil. Mm-hmm. And when I was first starting the book, I knew I wanted to include writers. But it's like, how do you choose? Because attention matters to every writer. But I then, over the course of my research, realized all in the space of one month that for these four Attention had become an obsession. Mm -hmm. Attention for all four of them in different ways meant the world. And in the case of David Foster Wallace, like you can see it through infinite jest, Mm -hmm. but it's really as he got older and closer to his death at age 46 that I think attention became kind of like an organizing principle for him. And if you read his final novel, The Pale King, you just see even the word attention is mentioned 150 times. And that's a book about basically about boredom. It takes place Mm -hmm. at an IRS office in in the middle of the country, and it's about how do you not go insane when you're just plunged into tedium. And I guess for him, the answer was attention. Wow. So why did you decide, I know you said you realized it could be something you would spend so much time on, but when did you say, like, I'm going to share all this personal stuff that happened with me and I'm going to put it all in a book. I'm going to put it out there. And that's <laughs> well, what my next move is. And how did you feel about that? Like, do you ever have reservations about putting it all out there? Like, for people who didn't maybe know that you had been going through this. Well, actually, the Adderall section started as a piece that I did for the New York Times Magazine mm-hmm. in 2016. And by the time I wrote that piece, I'd been totally off Adderall, or basically totally off Adderall for three plus years. And it, it, it honestly felt like I was writing about another person. I was writing about, oh, this 20-something. I mean, I knew her very well, mm-hmm. but it was not quite me anymore. And that mm-hmm. gave me just enough distance to be able to be completely candid about the experience. But also, I mean, by then I'd heard so many stories about people just like me who had been stuck in this addiction for so long and in all the ways that Adderall had kind of distorted their lives that I thought, you know what, this, this has to be told. Mm-hmm. And like, I know, I know that, that there are people out there going through this exact same thing. So I didn't have that many reservations about it. Maybe I had to kind of like convince myself, oh no, this isn't that personal in order to, to do it. 
No, it's so important that you did it and so helpful. Oh, no, I mean, I don't know about that, but... No, it, it's true. I mean, you have, I mean, every story that someone tells about their own experience ends up helping other people and maybe somebody's stuck in the same thing and then they read your book or they read your article and... Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> and you talk a lot about the relationship between addiction and attention and how right. they sort of, dove, you know, dovetail throughout. And, you know, this is actually one of David Foster Wallace's great themes, too. Mm-hmm. And you can see it through Infinite Jest. But I really kind of realized, you know, they're twinned in this funny way because they both have everything to do with being able to kind of sit with yourself and mm-hmm. sit with your own thoughts. I mean, it's like what was driving me to reach for these amphetamines? It was like this sense that, oh, I can't be just here on my own without this chemical enhancement. I can't face my own capacities and my own thoughts. I need to distort and alter. And I think that in a way, you know, when when you're compulsively reaching for your phone, it's exactly the same impulse. It's like, no, I'm I'm terrified of sitting here in silence. I'm gonna I'm gonna scroll through Instagram for the next 90 minutes. You know, there's that famous study that they did at University of Virginia in I think it was like 2014, where they found that a huge percentage of the subjects would rather be receive electric shocks than be left alone with their own thoughts. Wow. I mean, like it was That's something insane. like twenty-five percent were like, no, I'd rather be electrically shocked than have you take away my phone. So then that's part of the puzzle of this book is like, was trying to understand what are we running away from? Mm-hmm. And I think that that answer varies so much from person to person. There's not a universal response to it, but it does seem to be a universal desire. And I also found it interesting the study, and I'm going to forget who the man who did the study, that said he didn't think ADD, ADHD was genetic, but that it was a coping mechanism for not being able to deal with some of the less savory aspects of your own life. And so you don't want to pay attention to that. And so you, your thoughts go every which way else. Oh, and, completely. And that, that predilection almost for that type of thinking gets passed on, but not through genetics. I didn't say that very right. well. Right. No, exa- and that, and I was so struck by that thought too. That is this doctor named Dr. Gabor Mate. Right. And he is a fascinating figure. His specialty is really addiction. Mm-hmm. And again, there's this connection, but he's also written and spoken at length about attention. We spent a good amount of time together. And his feeling is that little kids start, they realize that anything stressful or painful or unsettling in the environment they're in, they can escape by seeking distraction, internal, external distraction. It's like it it becomes a tool for them Mm -hmm. to survive. And then it turns later into a set of behaviors that's then problematic when they're school age. And that gets diagnosed as ADHD. And so it's really so, what, what was radical for me about Gabor's ideas was that it was so emotion-based, mm-hmm. talking about attention through a lens of emotion yeah. rather than brain or intellect, but really about feeling. And after all this research and your own experience, do you have a point of view about medicating children for ADD, ADHD, or adults? Or Right. I mean, it's hard for me to answer because... I'm, I have no doubt that there are definitely kids and adults out there who can be helped by Adderall or other medications like Adderall. I never had a legitimate case of ADHD, right? And But that said, it was insanely easy for me to get my own prescription. I mean, I think I accomplished it in 40 minutes. I think that ADHD is still a very gray zone diagnosis. I think it's very easy to think you have it. I mean, who among us doesn't think we have ADHD from time to time, right? 
And I think that there's so much off-label or sort of partially off-label use of it that, you know, you have to be sort of just super aware of, do I need this? Am I being helped by it? It's so funny. I had this period of time where I thought I was like losing all my memory and I like went to neurologists and I was like, something's happening. I can't remember anything. And it turned out that I was so focused on so many other things that I wasn't imprinting the memories to begin with, which is exactly what you talked about in your book. I mean, I had like MRIs and all this stuff. Like it was... I was getting lost on the street. Like I was like, really? thought when, I was. When, when, like what was going on around that? Oh, I had twins who were not sleeping. Oh. They were like three and a half. Oh four. my God, say no more. We <laughs> were out of our apartment, staying in this temporary awful housing situation while we, between apartments, uh, tantrums like crazy. And I just started like <laughs> losing my mind. I was like, I can't remember anything. And so then I had to go get this neuropsych evaluation because I've never had attention problems either. I was like, great in school. Everything was fine. Right. And they're like, well, maybe now you have attention. Problems. I was like, I don't have attention problems. I'm just doing a lot of stuff. But meanwhile, right. like I can't fill out a form correctly anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, so finally they said, it's not that you have a memory disorder. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, I have early Alzheimer's. Something's going on. <laughs> but just that the things were not sticking to begin with. Right. Which and, it, like right. stays with me is like this haunting, you know, am yeah. I paying attention enough that I can get anything in the bank? <laughs> it's, it's so, I, I mean, I had no idea that there's actually all this neuroscience research showing a definitive link between distraction and forgetting. And it mm-hmm. makes total sense. Like yes. if you're not paying attention to your own life, you're actually not going to remember that much of it. That's right. It's like when you like, I was like, I can never remember if I've washed my hair or not in the shower. Like, did, did I do it? Did I not do it? Because I wasn't focused <laughs> on it to begin with. It's like your body just right. Exactly. It goes on anyway. You had this sad moment, though, in the book, happy, sad kind of thing, where you got your first prescription after basically Googling ADHD and figuring out what to say because you're a smart person and anybody can figure out how to fool right. basically any doctor. Don't that smart person. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that's okay. But you had this moment, and I, you had some quote about how alone you felt, which, of course, I won't be able to find. Yeah, you said you felt suddenly entirely alone. Okay, not such a big quote. But anyway, tell me about that moment on the street. You were in yeah. L.A., and you got your prescription. You 20, walked I think out. I was 22. I'd been taking Adderall whenever I could get my hands on it in college, but I never had my own prescription. And I finally, I was sort of tutoring kids and trying to take classes to be able to apply to graduate school. And I'm just in LA and it suddenly occurs to me, oh, it would be so convenient to have my own prescription, you know? I would ha- wouldn't have to be dependent on wh- whoever I could find. And that was dangerously easy to accomplish. And I, you know, it was a 40-minute consultation with a young psychiatrist in L.A., and I come out onto the street, and it was this wave of sadness came over me. And I think it was because no one I was close to knew how deep into this dependency I was sudden, I'd suddenly gotten myself, and also how far and how long this was going to turn out to go on. I mean, it was going to be eight more years of really being totally dependent on Adderall. And you had the, another scene where you're laying in bed and you had had an injury and your mother was laying next to you. And your mom, by the way, we should discuss. So your mom, Marie Brenner, has been the number one like mentor in the writing world for me since I was a kid. So she's a friend of my parents. And when I was growing up and I was like, I want to be a writer, they were like, well, I guess talk to Marie Brenner. We know her. <laughs> she writes. You know? And she has been like so amazing to me. And I remember her taking me. She doesn't even remember this, but she took me when I was living in L.A. after college to the book fair at UCLA, the LA Times book fair. And she had like a 
press pass and she got me into all these events. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, this is the coolest thing. And she's like, oh, did I go to that? (laughs) Zibi, I love that coincidence and that connection so much because, you know, I know that you know that my mom's this sort of force of nature. Yes. And she's this, you know, she's this South Texan turned New Yorker with this like insatiable lust for life. And we are so close, but I think that even though I spent a decade on this pill, she didn't exactly know. Yep. I mean, I think she knew something, but she didn't really know anything, the extent of it. And your mom, what you said in the book about her, about her constantly asking questions, says, oh, she's like a lean forward, let me ask a thousand questions a minute type of person. Yeah. And you were saying that that is kind of now good manners for you. You said she's the ultimate question asker, as much in everyday conversation as in her life as a journalist. In fact, for her and now, unavoidably for me, asking questions has always been the very definition of good manners, to show curiosity about another human being and mean it. Right. And actually, you know, people make fun of both my mother and me for the the incessant questions that we have. So I don't know if everyone would agree that it's good manners, (laughs) but it's like, it's been such a model for my life because my mother's curiosity has been the very lifeblood of her whole career and her whole existence. And she was always the mother who was saying, you know, let's go see, let's go meet, let's put everything aside, let's go to India, let's go find out. And I think for her, curiosity and therefore paying the paying attention that comes with curiosity is this way of getting out of your own self and your own little predicament or your own depression and being absorbed by the people or the places around you. And it, it's this tonic and this sort of like recipe for happiness. And your dad also is an author. And you go into detail about what happened, and we don't have to discuss, you can or cannot, that he was a victim, essentially, of the Me Too movement, and he lost his job, this prestigious job at WNYC, without cause, without an explanation. He was sort of shown to the door, and the ripple effects that your family, that it had in your family, and that there's another side of the coin of this whole, of this movement. I mean, we don't know what happened, because we never found out. And my my father, you know, had been on the radio in New York playing the American Songbook and Sinatra and all of it for about 20 plus years. And at, at the age of 80, he was one of, I think it was like the eight or nine men that NPR fired. And in his, and I can't really speak to any of the other cases, but in his case, we just never really found out why. So he... I don't know if there was cause or not, but we weren't told. And therefore, I mean, if there had been, he never had a chance to take responsibility or apologize or defend himself. So it was it was a strange happening that coincidentally took place while I was buried in research for the attention book. And I went back and forth for so long about whether I wanted to write about it because it's such a risky subject to talk about. I think it's understandably so fraught. And so important, a movement and a moment, a cultural reckoning. But I did want to share the experience that we went through. It was like, I'll never forget the feeling of, you know, his suspension was announced. And suddenly I'm seeing this moral outrage spread on Twitter within 60 minutes of people just jumping to conclusions without absolutely no information and no facts, nothing denouncing him, reclassifying him as a sexual predator. I mean, with zero information. And it was such a learning moment for me. Wow. 
Yeah. That's tough. I mean, it was. It really was. It was probably one of the hardest things we've ever gone through as a family. And you were like obviously so on the front lines. You were like, and then I had this call with my dad's lawyer, and then I did this. Like, yes, I, I was enmeshed. Like, yeah, I was enmeshed. I couldn't help it. I mean, as a reporter, I was enmeshed because I really was trying to extract as much information as I could. And and as a daughter, I just I was involved, and it sort of it was it. My own attention was completely hijacked for probably two or three months. And yeah, it was living through that was like nothing I've ever been through before. I'm so sorry that all oh, went down. Well, I mean, <laughs> thank you. But here we are, and he's he's okay. He's yeah. okay. Tell me a little more about your process. You mentioned you were deep in the research when this all happened. Give me a visual of how you work and what you do with all the research you collect. And is it all over your room and sticky notes on the wall? What, what type of It's process? so funny because my desk is the dining room table that's in our living room. And that's now, as of six weeks ago, like the diaper changed the table because <laughs> I just had a baby. But I would just, I write in the morning. I write for three or four hours, write as soon as I wake up. And no, it's not that much paperwork flying all over the place, thank God. It's mostly whatever I'm reading is right next to me, my notebook's right next to me, but it's just me at that computer in those first precious morning hours. And just how do you go back? How do you have the confidence? Or like, I know this must happen to so many authors where you have to start from scratch, you have to redo and redo. How do you just stay with it? Like, how did you do it? How do you, what do you think? I feel like it's almost irrational, like the tenacity that you need to finish a book. It's like almost crazy. It's borderline nuts, you know? <laughs> I really believe that. And I think a lot of writers have it, and it you need it. And also, I should say that my agent, Andrew, at the time was huge because he was like, just stay calm. We're going to sell this. We're going to find you a new home for it. And every single publisher in New York said no. And then Dan said, maybe. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, this is not for the faint of heart, this life, this author life. I mean, it's <laughs> right. And it also feels like increasingly kind of, you know, marginalized and anachronistic because everything's happening at the speed of Twitter. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what are you even doing shut up for years in a room with a computer writing one book? You know, what could seem more preposterous when we live at light warp speed? And yet it happens all the time. There's still <laughs> such a voracious appetite for it. Oh my God. I mean, books are everything. Books give life meaning. And having delved deep into these other topics, do you have a new topic that you think you're going to write about next? For some reason, I'm craving a story that takes place in Los Angeles and I'm kind of on the lookout for one. But I do, I love writing these hybrid, like personal and kind of narrative nonfiction and kind of putting it together. That's my favorite way of writing these days. So I'm, I'm looking for something on the West Coast and, and I don't even know why yet. Okay. Well, in all my time in LA, I will be searching for stories for you. I'll be like, Casey, how about this? I will. I really will. (laughs) So in the book, you write that, quote, attention can be heartbreaking. You pay attention and you notice an elderly gentleman one day in a restaurant and he's looking really lonely and you ask, does he always come in by himself? And they say pretty much yes. And you said that I paid attention to him does not change his life or better it in any way. But I think that it does change mine. So tell me a little about that. That was a moment I was having dinner with my husband and there was this this man in the corner just staring out at this crowded restaurant utterly alone, you know, which by the way, I mean, I eat dinner alone all the time, but there was this atmosphere to him that was very specific. And I, after he left, I said to the waitress, is he always here alone? And she said, yes, he's always here alone. And it just, it sort of made me think that, yeah. 
you know, it's a very painful thing to see someone's sadness so palpably. And I think, and there's so much sadness and so many problems around us. I mean, from the personal to the political to the global. I mean, it's when I think about the singed koalas in Australia, I could like sob. And I think the instinct is to to try and suppress those thoughts and that consciousness. But we we have to stay tuned in to what's going on. You had some line that if you paid attention to everything, life would be hell. Like, right. I mean, I, your brain won't let you. Yeah. I mean, it literally won't let you. But I think we just, we have to try and stay awake as much as we can. There also was this moment where I was wondering how you had the emotional fortitude or what lessons you could share when your book deal for the last book, you had an editor, you'd worked on it for years. Your editor leaves the publishing house. You get a new editor, takes you out to lunch or something in a snowstorm and says, actually, I don't think your book needs to exist. It doesn't even need to exist. And then leaves you sitting there, like stunned, shocked. My heart just broke for you in that moment. And then I couldn't believe like a paragraph or two later, you're like, and then I sent it out to a bunch of new publishers and I had to like go back to the time. I was like, did she really do like really good for her? Well, my agent. Okay. But um, still. But it was, no, it was rough. It, I was 30. I'd been on Adderall again. It was like, actually it, I had been on Adderall for 10 years. So the manuscript was a mess because it was the product of very muddled thinking. And it was canceled by this young editor I was reassigned to. And it was one of the worst moments of my life that became one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me because she and I were never going to have a creative collaboration. And by incredible good luck, it led me to Dan Frank, who was the editor of that last book and is the current editor of this one. And that has been one of the most precious, charmed relationships of my entire life. And it was the prompt for getting me off Adderall because I realized I have made such a mess of everything I actually care about. I can't write on amphetamines. I cannot feel or see clearly. And that getting my first book canceled was like the rock bottom moment that within months I was off Adderall. It could have gone a very different way. I mean. Yeah, it could have. I mean, it was by the skin of my teeth that Dan took me on and I had to re-report and rewrite that entire, I mean, I don't think a single sentence was remained the same. So it was like another whole year of writing and reporting and it was so worth it just to have a chance to be with him. In conclusion, after all of this research and your whole book and everything, how can we pay more attention? How can we live like more in the moment? This is something on my mind all the time, like most people. What do you, what totally. do you think? Has it helped you to learn all of this and has it changed your behavior? I think it has. I mean, I, for me personally, things like silent meditation retreats and digital detoxes are just too radical. And I've given up hope that, that I could personally could be helped by them. But the power of studying and thinking about like how important attention is in terms of having a good life, just to have that thought in your mind when you're in the middle of an Instagram stupor, you know, when you're on Twitter in despair at like the discourse you're seeing, like just to stay, try and stay conscious of the fact that right now your attention has been hijacked and by, you know, by literally technologists of Silicon Valley and their algorithms have taken your attention from you and then you need to stay awake and push back. For me, that's the only thing that's helped me so far, but I'm still looking for other solutions like everyone. <laughs> Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yes, I actually do. And I, I, to, to young writers right now, I would say avoid and resist groupthink. 
I think there's so much fear about offending the group that you want to be identified with online. And that I don't think that great writing really springs from placating the group you wish to belong to. I think it springs from speaking from your heart, even if you're going to offend or alienate people that, you know, you admire. I love that. You have to stay true to yourself. I mean, that's right. Right. Always. Well, thank you so much, Casey. Thanks for coming on. And thanks for this great book. And thanks for bringing attention to the forefront of my mind and helping me think about it in, in, in a whole new way. Oh, you're so welcome, Zibby. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again for listening today, everybody. And don't forget to check out wefoundtime.com. And it's also available on zibbyowens.com as a tab, but also at wefoundtime.com. Check out the essays and go to Instagram at zibbyowens and check out my Instagram lives. 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. every weekday, Monday to Friday during this quarantine where I interview four to five authors live for a few minutes each. Please check it out and thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing and thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 